You are listening to weekly messages from Austin Christian Fellowship. For more information about ACF, visit acfellowship.org. Good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Michelle Briggins, and I serve here as ACF's missions pastor, and it is a joy to be with you today. Um, What you need to know is I'm going to stand here and abuse the fact that I get to stand here and invite you to a class that I'm teaching after the services today at 1 o'clock. And it is uh, the final installment of our Next Steps class. And, and I'll be teaching on Serve. We're going to give you free lunch and free child care. So come on. Come on and join us. Even if you haven't jumped in yet, we'd love to see you today. Uh, that will begin at 1 o'clock. And it will be up at the prayer barn that's right here on campus. If you need a Bible today, either you've got yours at home or maybe you don't have one, will you raise your hand and our guest services team will bring a Bible to you and you can take it home with you or you can just leave it in the chair, whatever you prefer. But we'd love you to have a copy of the Word of God today. So I am so excited to be with you to get to set the table for our new series, The Finest Hour. And in this finest hour, what we're referring to is a time in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and his disciples. And we're going to spend four weeks in this garden. And we're going to talk to you about it through very different lenses. And today, I get to talk to you through the lens of Jesus' suffering. And I know that that fills you with excitement, but we're in hard times, right? There's a lot of pain in our world right now, and this is a time where we might need to learn from the master, where we might need to learn from Jesus. So if uh, you've gotten your Bible, we're going to be in Luke 22:15. if you want to go ahead and turn there. This is a, a scene that is happening right after the Last Supper, and there's so much in the Last Supper that we won't touch on, but I do want to tell you three things about that time. Number one, in Luke 22:15 Jesus says I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he's telling them what's about to happen and he knows what's about to happen. There's no mystery what's about to come. He's washed their feet and he's also sent Judas on his way to carry out Judas's very dark mission to betray Jesus which will lead to Jesus's arrest an execution on the cross. He dismisses Judas to go about that business during the Last Supper. Okay, before we go much further, can we just take a minute and pray? (sighs) Father God, thank you for being here with us in this room. Thank you for this day that you have made, and let us rejoice and be glad in it. Father, thank you for the grace and mercy that came to you with the morning sun as well. And God, we need it today. We have uh, a hard bit of passage to walk through together. And with our hurting hearts, we're going to ask you to be tender with us and hold us close. And Father, I'm going to ask specifically that you just empty me of me and fill me up with you because I don't have the strength to get through this without you. And I need my voice to carry your words. And I humbly ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for praying with me. Okay, I lied before. Luke 22, 15 was the Passover discussion. We are actually going to be in Luke 22, 39 through 46. So just keeping you on your toes here. 
So in this scene, the Passover has happened, and Jesus is taking the 11 remaining disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus and his disciples have gone away and prayed there together before. This is not their first time there. It's a very familiar place, which is also interesting because Judas is going to know exactly where to find him, right? He's not hiding from the mission that's been set before him. There's uh, an important thing to know about Gethsemane. In Matthew and Mark, he calls out that they're at Gethsemane. In Luke, he says, the place. They're going out to the place at the Mount of Olives. It's all the same place. Gethsemane is interesting. Gethsemane is actually an olive pressing operation. The word Gethsemane comes from the Aramaic and Hebraic words that mean oil press. I mean, there's no mystery there. And so a Gethsemane would be the actual pressing of the olives to make the olive oil. And the garden would be adjacent and it would have the grove of trees. So that operation, you're going to see a picture here, and it is the first stage of that pressing is with something called the olive crusher. And, and you see that big round vat. And so the ripe olives would be placed in the vat, and then that, that millstone and that post would be led by a donkey, and they would crush the olives. And they would do it for about 20 to 30 minutes until those olives were paced. After the crushing there would be a first layer of oil, and it was the finest, purest oil. It was the first fruits of the olives, therefore it was given to God in the, to be used in the temple. It was used for anointing, it was used for lighting, it was used for temple business. Then all of that mashed up olive that remained would be put into an olive press. You should see that picture. And in this olive press, there's gonna be a, uh, do you see those big square stones? Those are weights. And so as they pressed the olives, they would continually add weights until all that was left of the olive itself was dust. It crushed the olives into dust. But even the dust was used for fuel. But what I want you to know and see here is that Gethsemane is a place of great crushing. And this is where Jesus is going to pray to the Father. Let's go now to Luke 22, to his account of what happens in the garden. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. <clears throat> he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. It's really interesting, and it's an in interesting issue of translation. But in, in Luke, he says Jesus is in anguish. But in Mark, 43, Mark 14, 33, he says this. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. The word for deeply distressed and troubled, it's going to be on the screen because I'm not going to dishonor you by trying to pronounce this thing. 
But this word means something very different than, than troubled. It means, it means to throw into amazement or terror, to alarm thoroughly, to terrify, a profound distress that can manifest itself physically before a horrifying event. Note the verb tense in our passage. He began to be. So as he's entering into that garden, something happened. Something that shocked him, something that shook him to his very core. But, but how can this be, friends? How can this be? He's the incarnate God. He can't be in agony. He certainly can't be surprised. And why on earth does he seem shaken in his mission? Why is this happening? What we're seeing in Gethsemane gives us one of the most astounding and powerful views of our Savior, being fully God and fully human. And we're seeing what I would call a holy wrestle that we don't see at any other point in the Gospels. New Testament scholar Bill Lane says this, Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. When he goes to the Father, he's used to looking him in the face, the face of the Father, the face of love. Imagine his agony and pain when instead he's seeing hell. Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century American preacher and theologian, said this in his famous sermon, Christ's Agony. The agony was caused by a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the wrath of God. The Father, as it were, set the cup down before him, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He now had a near view of that furnace into which he was about to be cast. He stood and viewed its raging flames and the glowing of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. He thought of Ezekiel, what Ezekiel said, you shall drink the cup of ruin and desolation and tear your breasts. And what Isaiah said, you shall drink the cup of his fury and stagger. So we see that Jesus is facing way more than physical pain, friends. At the cross, Jesus will be for the first time separated from the Father. At the cross, he will drink the cup of wrath and sin for us. And think about the pain of that. Jesus and the Father, since the beginning of time, have had, for all eternity, have had this intimate entwining and communion in their relationship, the intimacy, the love, and he's feeling that rending. Imagine, imagine. As he's walking into the garden, he's getting that first taste of what all of this pain and all of this agony will be like. And remember, he's walking into the garden of the oil press, and he's getting pressed and crushed, and as he says in Mark, to the point of death. So none of God's children have ever encountered anything like this, or maybe will never again. Even martyrs don't get that complete separation from God. And we know this because in Acts 7, we see the stoning of Stephen. 
And in Acts 7, what is happening is the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers are challenging Stephen on his allegiance to Christ and they want him to separate and he doubles down. He doesn't just say, no, he's my Messiah. He says, and oh, by the way, you betrayed him. And oh, by the way, you murdered him. And the Sanhedrin lose their mind. They tear their clothes. They gnash their teeth and they order his death by stoning. But let's look, <laughs> let's think about this. In Acts 7, 56, he says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing right next to the Father. So Stephen, in his martyrdom, is seeing the face of God. Jesus, in the garden, is seeing hell. It's a whole different thing. So, other thing I want to say is that when we think of suffering and sin and human wickedness, what we're thinking is what we see on our news feeds. The brokenness in this world, the pain, the agony, the division, the fighting. What Jesus is seeing as he looks into the cup of wrath is that human wickedness and sin all the way to the first garden. All the way from Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve made that decision to go against God even though they were dwelling in the presence of God, and they made a decision to take that fruit from the tree of life and bite into it because they wanted wisdom and power. Jesus is standing in the garden as the perfect human in the perfect communion with God, and it's almost happening in reverse for him, right? That rending in pain, that decision to take the cup. But he's getting this foretaste, and we get to look at how does he respond? How does he respond to this intense furnace of suffering? And how can we pull from this and apply it to our own lives? Elizabeth Elliot um, was a missionary. Her first husband, Jim, on the mission field was martyred. And they had gone to serve this tribe in Ecuador to, give, to help translate their language into the gospel. And he's murdered. And here she is on the mission field. Fast forward almost 20 years later, she remarries. And her second husband dies of cancer three years into their marriage. So I say all of this only that you should know about Elizabeth Elliot because she's amazing and fascinating. But also, she knows a bit about suffering. She's, she has a little bit of an eye line into what it's like to suffer. In her book, Suffering is Never for Nothing, she says, and I love her definition. I love the simplicity of it. She says, suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. That's simple. The deepest things that I've learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things I know about God. So here's a woman who has suffered greatly and says that she gained something deep with God in that suffering. How powerful is that? There's something to be gained by these dark hours that we go through. And I don't know about you, but I need to know this. I need to understand this. And so when I'm learning about suffering, there are a lot of sources you can go to, but I want to go to Jesus. I want to see how he walks through suffering in the garden. So let's go. Number one, in times of suffering, take friends. ACF calls 
this dynamic garden friends because of Jesus's modeling in this. He left that Passover meal with all 11 disciples, but he called out the three closest to him, his tightest innermost circle, his garden friends. In times of suffering, be still. We don't see Jesus descend into busyness. Like he's got time with his three disciples and you know he could be reviewing, I think we need to go over the Sermon on the Mount again. I think we need to instill this last lesson. We've got some time, let's do this, right? He could, and, and honestly, that's oftentimes our response. I've got some time, let me cram something into that time. But he doesn't. He's still. In times of suffering, cry out. This is something that as a culture, we've grown a little uncomfortable with, but in the Bible, when you look at it, this concept is called lament. It's the first line after a crisis or suffering happens. We go right into lament. Lament is different than just a wailing and an emotional response. Lament is a form of prayer, and it's between you and God. It's taking all of that pain, all of that agony right to God, just as Jesus did, and we wrestle with it. Take this cup from me, not my will, but your will. I mean, Jesus is wrestling. That's what we are called to do. And lament has a very, very specific purpose. Its unique purpose is trust. It is taking all of that to the Father as an act of trust. And if you think of it this way, it is a divinely given invitation from the Father to pour out our tears, frustrations, and sorrows for the purpose of helping us reconnect with him and grow closer with him. Could this be why Elizabeth Elliot is knowing the deepest things of God in her suffering? Because of her ability to cry out? This is the hardest one for me. I'm not laying that on you, but this next one is the hard one. In times of suffering, trust God. Trust God. It seems simple, but if you've been in suffering, is it? We see Jesus receiving right now in this garden the greatest test he'll ever receive. He is fully man, which means he has free will. He is fully God. He fully knows the mission at hand, but he's staring into the cup. The pain, the horror, the terror. He's getting this foretaste, and I think the timing of the foretaste is interesting, don't you? Why is God giving him this? Well, I think it's because he gets to choose. Because if you think about it, those disciples are asleep, and it's dark outside, and Ephesus is a journey he's familiar with, he could take off. He could run. He's already begging the Father, please take this cup, let's do this another way. So he could take it into his own hands. We've seen that before. And run, but he doesn't. What we see him do is pour himself out completely and being sold out to the will of God. Not my will, but yours be done. He repeats it over and over. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis has written about suffering, and he says this. He says that suffering is basically our heart's desire and our circumstances that have grown apart. 
And he said the fools will change the circumstance. This marriage is hard right now. I'm kind of done. I'll trade in that spouse for a new model, right? We see that all over our culture today. My heart wants something. I'm just going to go do that thing. And what happens is eventually, if not arrested, that leads your life into this just system of chaos. Well, let's look at the flip side of that coin. Cynics of the time would say, okay, you've got your heart's desire and your circumstances over here. Let's just change our heart. Let's, let's adapt our heart so we don't feel pain over that circumstance. And what happens then, friends, is we become numb. Because if you're numbing that pain, you're numbing joy. And look at all the vices we use to numb ourselves. We drink too much. We eat too much. We run away and hide. We fall into behaviors in order to get this numbing done that lead us to a very desperate time. But let's look at what Jesus does. He wrestles in the garden. He doesn't run from it. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't try to numb it. He goes right to God, and he's crying out to the Father over and over again. And what does God do? He doesn't respond in the way Jesus is used to having him respond, but he sends an angel from heaven. And I think it's fascinating that that angel doesn't come in order to comfort him. Because comforting would be removing the cup. Comfort would be changing the plan, but he's on this very specific mission. Instead, what that angel brings to him is strength, strength to face the mission. And what's Jesus' response? What, how does he use that strength? He prays more earnestly. He takes that strength and doubles down in prayer. And does that make him feel better? No. The very next thing is he's sweating drops of blood. So there's not this angel coming to solve the problem for Jesus. It's the angel giving him strength to walk through his mission. He doesn't receive comfort, but we see him stand and go wake up the disciples right as, Ju right as Judas comes to arrest him. He gets his strength instead of comfort, strength to complete his mission. So as he's facing this cup of wrath, right, and as he's struggling, you gotta think, a question has come to his mind at some point. Does he love them that much to do this thing, to drink from this cup? And I think here we see the answer is yes. Yes, he wrestled. And he knew it was either him or us. And he chose us. What greater act of love is that? So we've processed how to be a person walking through suffering and what our response should be. But what if we're in the seat of the garden friend? What if we're the, the person who's serving the person in the suffering? We've identified that a garden friends are the innermost circle. So if you are someone's garden friend, you should know it. It's not, it shouldn't be a mystery. You should say, I, this is crisis is happening to my loved one. I go. But how do you prepare yourself for that? Well, the first thing we do is pray. And, and we're not necessarily praying for our garden friend yet. We're praying for ourselves. 
Because if our loved one is hurting, if our loved one is in pain, we have empathy. We're going to be hurting. We're going to be in pain. And sometimes that pain can distract us from our mission. Right? We also will need things like wisdom and strength to walk through this. But we need to put the mask on our own faces, the oxygen mask, before we put it on the face of the child, right? We learn that over and over again in our culture. It's the same thing. We've got to give ourselves oxygen to face whatever it is that we're going to face. Next, and this seems obvious, but you know what? It's really not all necessarily obvious for us. If your garden friend is suffering, you are a first responder. Therefore, you must go. You must go. Sometimes we can be so overwhelmed with the situation that we think, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, so maybe I'll wait till next week and let the other garden friends come in, right? No. There's something in your gifting, in your relationship that is so unique that we can't miss it. We can't miss giving that garden friend that moment of you, of you. Next, it's okay to be still with your garden friend. There are times in suffering when stillness is all you need. Busyness is distracting them from their pain, and there is a time when it's okay to just sit still with them and be with them. I had um, an experience. I was 20 years old at the University of Texas, and my roommate, who was my garden friend, she and I were heading out for a busy day on campus, and our landline rang, aged myself. We didn't even have cell phones yet. So my roommate goes to pick up the phone, and I can tell by her demeanor pretty quickly that that news is bad on the other end. And I stand next to her, and I'm touching her shoulder, but friends, the tables turned on me. The news was not her bad news, it was mine. And my beloved dad, he was only 43, had died suddenly the night before. And when I say the world was ripped out from under me, it was, I was a daddy's girl who lost her daddy. And I'm here to tell you, I did not keep my cool. I did not stiff up her lip. I fell to the ground and cried and wailed. I dropped the phone. But my garden friend picked up the phone, received instructions for when my family would drive into town to pick me up. And do you know she didn't move a muscle? She stayed right next to me, held my hand, and didn't ask me to do anything, didn't say it's going to be okay, because guess what? It wasn't. She just was still by my side. Fast forward four more days, and we've had the funeral, and it's, it's the night after the funeral in my grandmother's house in the living room, and it descends on me again. Because you know, when, when you have something like that, something so grievous, something happens that becomes what my friend calls heavenly anesthesia, and you grow numb. But when that anesthesia wears off, comes in hard. Well, my beloved husband, John, we were not married yet. He was living and working in Washington, D.C., but of course had flown in to be with me. And think about him. He's 22 at this point, and I am wailing. And he's the only one in the room with me. Guess what he did? Held my hand, sat with me while I wailed, didn't tell me, shh, it's going to be okay. He just let it go. 
He at 22, Anne at 20, they had the wisdom to know there's a time that it's okay to just be still. And it's interesting, preparing the sermon for you, which by the way, was a hard week. Living in that space again, in that terrible tragedy and trauma, those are the only two points of comfort that I could remember. Just those. Be still. Be free to just be still. Next, we gotta stay alert. And I can't help but use a sports analogy with this one, but imagine a tennis player up on their toes with those soft knees, the basketball player, they're moving, they're ready, they're focused on that garden friend. The garden friend is the ball, friends. The garden friend is the ball. You're watching the ball, you're tracking with the ball, you're moving with the ball. And you might be in this alert state for a very long time. Because remember, suffering is wanting what you don't have and having what you don't want. And there's no definition of time. We don't get to say you get to grieve for a year and then off you go. We don't get to say that your heart's desire for this thing can only last one year. It could stretch on for 10. But you're tracking with that garden friend and you understand there are peaks and valleys to grief and longing and suffering. And so you know when that friend needs to sit with you and have a conversation. And you know when that friend needs to go do something fun and silly. You know when you need to show up with a big or a small because you're tracking, you're alert, and you're going the distance. Next, we need to be able to intercede for our garden friends. When you're in the darkest hours of suffering, you don't even know how to pray anymore. You run out, right? You give up. I can't pray anymore. And that's when those garden friends are praying constantly, interceding on their behalf. I don't even know what, what Susie is feeling today but I know she has to be hurting, beat her there. I don't know what Bob is experiencing today, but I know that this is a hard road. Meet him where he is. Whatever it is, pray, intercede. And next, you are the one that may need to point him back to Jesus because suffering can be a black hole. And after experiencing it for a certain amount of time, or even just because of the intensity of the suffering, they may lose complete confidence that God is there for them, that Jesus is there. And you may be the person that has to sit next to them and hold their hand and take them back to the Garden of Gethsemane and remind them in that garden, he made a choice. He didn't run. He stayed. He drank the cup. He went to the cross and he died for your sins so that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. If he loved you so much then, he's not going to leave you or forsake you or push you away now. He loves you that much. So pray with them so they can feel a tangible experience with the father in that suffering and be reminded of how beloved they are. Listen. I open by saying we're living in a hard time. And I'm not about to put a tight little sweet bow on this. But I will give you two passages in scripture that I will go to over and over again. And I love that they come from Jesus and they're in Revelation at the end of the story. 
Revelation 21.5 says, Behold, I am making all things new. And then 22.20, he says, Surely, I am coming soon. We can hang on to these promises, friends. Even in our darkest pits, he's making all things new, and he's coming soon. When persecution and suffering come to us, we don't have to fall into the division. We don't have to fall into the vitriol and the hate of our world. We can contain and remain fully and just entrenched in our hope, just entrenched in our hope. Because for believers, ours is the kingdom of heaven. Ours is the kingdom of God. And he has told us we will receive the new heaven and the new earth. Can I have an amen? Thank you. Sometimes we get stirred up when we talk about hard things. The pain of our past or the pain we're going through right now will just intensify. So Candy and Tyler are going to come up and sing what I think is a beautiful, beautiful song over all of us. And what I ask of you is this. If you are stirred, if you are in pain, can you come to our altar? This is our ACF altar. And leave it here with Jesus and talk to him about it. Let's go to the Father together.